This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Big stories, big guests, the big picture. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge. Weekdays, 1230 to 3, 770 CHQR. All right, welcome back. Rob Breckenridge with you here. Bill C-10 is uh, the government's uh, plan to amend the Broadcasting Act. So, so this represents some big changes. And look, I, I think in fairness, obviously the broadcasting landscape has changed. What we consider to be broadcasting has changed. How people consume content has changed. You know, look, it's certainly the, the position of Chorus, uh, our parent company, that there's not a level playing field that something needs to change, uh, either more regulation for some of the big tech giants or less regulation uh, for more traditional broadcasters. So, so there's that whole conversation. But some, some aspects of Bill C-10, I've raised some questions about you know, the direction the government's going here and how far the government's prepared to go here. You know, it's one thing to say, hey, you know, the content that Netflix is, is generating, that's, that's broadcasting. Okay, sure, they're making movies and TV shows. But if somebody uploads a video to YouTube, you know, them doing a trick on their skateboard, or someone uploads uh, themselves doing a dance on TikTok, is that, is that broadcasting? Is that something that the CRTC needs to regulate? And that appears to be the path that we're going down here. Uh, here's a story from uh, Star Media. Uh, Canadians who upload videos to the internet could find that their content falls under the watchful eye of the federal government after proposed changes to Bill C-10 were modified at the 11th hour next week. So proponents of the move say it could help protect people from seeing problematic content, but some experts in opposition and peace sounding the alarm over this potential change. So... Again, I mean, if there's problematic content, illegal content, there's ways of dealing with that. If there's copyright violations, there's ways of dealing with that. I don't know if the CRTC is uh, the answer to all of this, but joining us to, to kind of make sense of this, if we can, very pleased to welcome to the program here this afternoon, uh, Dr. Emily Laidlaw, Canada Research Chair in Cybersecurity Law and Associate Professor in the Faculty of Law at the University of Calgary. Dr. Laidlaw, thanks so much for joining us here. Welcome to the program. Yeah. Hi, thanks for having me. So, I, I don't know. I mean, does, does any of this make sense to you, first of all? No, I, I have to say I was really surprised to see this amendment. And, and, and I think part of the reason is, is that, you know, all the way along, even in the federal government communications about the new bill, um, they, they promote it as being compliant with the charter because things like user generation, user-generated content is carved out of it. The broadcasting regulation will not apply to them, um, or at least not apply to that type of content. And and there was kind of a, a swift change at the end of last week when the Heritage Committee just made one simple amendment to the bill and removed a key provision that changed everything. This, this, and this is a big change. How, how, how consequential is this in your view? 
Well, it's going to be huge. And I think that, um, you know, one of the things to remember is that this is, narrowly speaking, a regulation about broadcasting. So, and, and it's trying to modernize it. It's, it's looking at all the different ways that we should start thinking about the roles of the Netflix of the world and their streaming and the way that, um, for example, social media, social media might have affiliated content that they paid for. They might produce their own content. There's all these different ways we now consume media. Um, but with this change, what it does is it says, look, social media companies are now essentially acting almost as broadcasters for all the user-generated content they host. And not kind of the, the interpersonal interactions like me making comments on Facebook, but any of the videos that are uploaded. So you give the example of videos uploaded to TikTok or if I'm you know, posting some video on YouTube or whatever it is. That's just personal um, or even, for example, videos I post for my my classes that I teach at the law school that would suddenly be brought under the umbrella of and YouTube would be like a broadcaster like like CNN or CBC with this suite of programming, which apparently now is all the different home videos that we make and upload. Yeah. It's strange. I mean, if we take uh, you know Facebook as an example, it's easy enough for a citizen to get on Facebook and write a long rant about something, right? And I'm sure the CRTC could care less about that. But if that same citizen records themselves reading that rant and instead posts the video, is it now something different? Is it now something for the CRTC to, to regulate or be concerned with? Well, and this is why I wonder what what the thinking was here, and you know, and I've heard different things about what, what prompted it, but I wonder if it, there's a bit of error here because that would be captured by the new regulation, and that would mean that, for example, YouTube has to look at all these different videos and say, how do I prioritize with this user-generated content, Canadian content? How do I make it more easily discovered by Canadians online? So it just creates a whole different heavily regulated landscape than what we're used to. Now, in terms of the purpose of this, so I I mean, I've seen different explanations or excuses, even you could call them, that maybe this is about problematic content or the suggestion from the minister's press secretary that this is about you know copyright issue when it comes to you know the use of of certain songs. I mean these. The rationale seems all over the place. Do, do you have any clear understanding of what the intent is here? Well, I don't have a clear intent. So let me address what, uh, I guess, the same sort of talking points that I've heard as you about this. Mm-hmm. Um, I think one of the things to separate out here is, you know, the reaction might be, oh, there's terrible stuff on social media. Absolutely, let's regulate it. Okay, but that's separate regulation. So that's regulation for online harms. We're dealing with cyberbullying, terrorist and violent extremist content, um, you know, all the different, you know, forms of abuse we see online. We have a bill coming for that. That's online harms legislation. Right. And I guess the, the other one you mentioned is, is um, perhaps copyright. And, I, and I've heard that as well as one of the reasons is, is trying to address some of the issues of of copyright infringement. But again, we have an entire um, body of law to deal with that. So if anyone's tried to post anything to YouTube that they shouldn't, they will all have been subject to YouTube's content ID system, which is a whole way to regulate for copyright infringing content. So this just Mm. seems unnecessary. 
And YouTube's an interesting case because the lines are blurred. I mean, you know, I can't upload a video to Netflix. Netflix makes content. It's a little clear there. YouTube's different because a lot of what's on YouTube is user-generated. But YouTube is certainly getting into that realm where they're producing their own content. So if, if YouTube is, is hiring a studio to produce, a, you know, a movie or, or a series for them, is it fair to consider that broadcasting? Well, yeah, and I think it is, and that was one of the ways that that the the bill was seeking to modernize broadcasting is to say, okay, what are the ways that these social media companies aren't just hosts of user generated content? They are producing their own movies, or or sometimes they're paying for you know snippets, right? Like they might be snippets yeah. of, of of sports scenes and stuff, and and, and uh, kind of live action. And so they have all kinds of affiliate agreements for that kind of content. Um, and that was sort of fair game for the new, you know, vision of broadcasting. And some are critical of it and some aren't. But this change now is different because it captures all of us. And we might not be directly bound by it, but we're impacted by it because YouTube now has to comply with all these heavy broadcasting regulation rules about user-generated content. And so what that means is for them to comply, their only option is to more heavily monitor content and surveil it, to maybe um, implement policies to vet all content to prevent uploading because they're going to have to check it. They're going to have to change the content that we see to comply with Canadian content requirements. So maybe remove more content than they did before. So it has a huge impact on how we interact online, even if we're ourselves not directly regulated by it. Now, there's going to be the court of public opinion, and I I suspect people might not like this, but uh, we'll see how that side plays out. But what about the actual courts? Is this this legally or constitutionally problematic in your view? I think it is. Uh, But like all things tech-related, it's always a test case, isn't it? Yeah. So this is what I'll say about it is that, you know, broadly speaking, we do have the right to freedom of expression and there are constraints on it. But broadcasting has always been seen, you know, the broadcasting laws as a really narrow and exceptional kind of regulation of free speech. People generally should be able to go out out and about and be able to express themselves the way they want to. And so this is really unprecedented. Where it's a slight gray area is that the government isn't telling social media companies what to regulate or how to regulate. It's just if you roll out of the ball of string, the social media companies have no other choice except for to heavily regulate speech in order to comply with Canadian law. And so I think that there's a real uh, charter issue there. I certainly think that it might not survive charter scrutiny so that it might be violating it, but um, uh, but it would be a bit of a test case. We'll see where it all goes from here. I uh, appreciate the insight, Dr. Laidlaw. Thanks for making some time for us here today. Yeah, thank you. Bye. All right. All the best. Uh, that is uh, Dr. Emily Laidlaw, Canada Research Chair in uh, Cybersecurity Law, Associate Professor in the Faculty of Law, University of Calgary. So, oh boy, where do you even start with this? Well, let's start with a break. We'll all gather our thoughts and try to compose ourselves and then try to address this uh, in, in a rational way. But this just seems crazy, doesn't it? Anyway. Anyway. 
Welcome back. Uh, another announcement yesterday I wanted to spend some time talking about. It concerns vaccines for younger Albertans. Let me play this clip. This is Health Minister Tyler Shandra, who announced yesterday that Alberta is going to begin offering the Pfizer vaccine to youth with underlying health conditions who are between the ages of 12 and 15. Starting tomorrow, Albertans born between and including 2006 and 2009 with an underlying health condition can get immunized with the Pfizer vaccine. Now, these are young folks who are turning 12, 13, 14, and 15 this year with the conditions that we previously opened up to those who are 16 and older in phase 2B. And this includes conditions such as chronic heart, lung, liver, or kidney disease, severe learning or developmental delays, and those who have been diagnosed with cancer in the last year. And it's important to note that we're acting on the evidence. The National Advisory Committee on Immunization has recommended that the Pfizer vaccine be used to immunize 12 to 15-year-olds who are at high risk of severe outcomes if they contract COVID-19. And this is in line with what other jurisdictions are doing, including Ontario. Now, parents or guardians who are making the bookings for youths who qualify are asked to speak with their physician to discuss the decision. After that has happened, they can get a doctor's note and then book an appointment at a pharmacy, or they can call HealthLink at 811, or they can make an appointment at an AHS clinic. Okay. And it was interesting. I saw one social media post yesterday, a mom who has a 13-year-old with an underlying health condition, and she said she was sobbing with joy that they basically had to keep their kid isolated for the last uh, year and a bit. And uh, so, so this is big. Uh, now, at this point, though, uh, the vaccine is not approved for those under 16. Now, Pfizer has uh, submitted some data for consideration, and they've had some encouraging results uh, with regard to the 12 to 15 age group. So joining us uh, for some further thoughts on this announcement and kind of where we're headed overall on this front, very pleased to welcome to the program Dr. Jim Kellner, uh, pediatrician and uh, subspecialist in pediatric infectious diseases. He's a professor and head of the Department of Pediatrics at the University of Calgary. Dr. Kellner, thank you so much for joining us here. Welcome to the program. Thanks very much, Rob. Happy to be here. Uh, so let me get your thoughts on, on this announcement and what's the, the guidance or, or the evidence that uh, we're relying on here? Yeah, well, so at this time, the evidence is uh, the direct evidence for the use of the um, Pfizer vaccine uh, in children is, um, and in this is in adolescents, is um, is limited. And the official data that has um, been generated by Pfizer through their clinical trial that they've um, used to submit uh, for approval in Canada, the U.S., and elsewhere hasn't been made public yet. So all we've seen is the so-called top-line data that has been um, um, in press release but haven't seen further details yet. However, that data that's coming, two things about it. One is it looks very promising, as expected, um, very high levels of immune response uh, to the vaccine, um, a good safety profile comparable to how it is in adults. And the second related to that is we expect the vaccine to be effective in children. There's no immunologic or clinical reason not to expect this vaccine to work in children. So um, this is where we're at today is that the recommendations on the basis of uh, not knowing for sure what the data will show and, and what we'll see in the fullness of time, but having the anticipation that the vaccine will be shown to be both safe and effective uh, in children and that there are a group of children, particularly those with high-risk conditions that um, you know really should move forward to be vaccinated sooner rather than later. Yeah. So for this group, then, you think it makes sense to move forward now? 
I think it makes perfect sense. And um, yeah. I think it's analogous to how it was uh, at the beginning of uh, the vaccination campaign with um, pregnant women and, um, and um, adults with immunocompromised uh, states. Uh, because for both of those groups, we still don't have um, definitive data saying that the vaccines work. We have increasing data that they're safe in pregnant women. Uh, we have uh, increasing data suggesting that there's some people who have immune compromised disorders where the vaccine may need to be given, you know, uh, more rapidly the second dose, um, but also safe. And so if we know the vaccines are safe and we expect that they should work, uh, we should move forward with those groups, even as we're awaiting the final data that, uh, that comes. This is not a reckless recommendation. This is um, responding to what you anticipate will come forward with the data as it is for now and uh, in the context that not expecting any um, safety issues. It's interesting, and I, and I think the variants have maybe changed the equation a little bit, but, you know, we, we look at uh, children more generally and, and how they're impacted, certainly less severely impacted by this virus. question of whether we can build enough of a herd immunity wall that, that it would be unnecessary to, to vaccinate them. Where are we at in those considerations? <laughs> So I think one thing that's, uh, you know, if we look at the examples of what's going on around the world right now, the two best examples and most important examples for us to follow in Canada, I think, are the United Kingdom and Israel. Mm-hmm. Um, in Israel, where around 60% of the population has received two doses of the Pfizer vaccine, their, they, their third wave, which was much, much higher than our current third wave is, um, but vaccination started during that, and it's come down to almost no disease in Israel. They're opening up widely as we speak. In the UK, where they also had a brutal third wave um, that has come down to almost nothing, their focus has been on getting as many people with one dose as possible. So about 50% of the population has had at least one dose of AstraZeneca or, or Pfizer mostly, and, um, and only about 10% have had two doses. They're at the similar stage of, um, of hard any um, infection around, and they're opening up widely. So <clears throat> the va- to get to herd immunity, um, you uh, need to have enough people immunized in the setting of, depending on, you don't know how many people have had um, actual disease, but in both those countries, estimate a higher number of people have had actual diseases, but still no more than 10% or so. Then, as you lift off restrictions, people's behaviors will change. So this is the thing we don't know. How well will the benefit of the vaccine last when only adults have been immunized and when you're no longer having restrictions? So nobody knows this for sure, but my perspective is that, you know, the the public health restrictions, masking, distancing, hand washing, reducing gatherings, etc., have have had a huge impact. I mean, that's not just my perspective, that's fact, Mm -hmm. that it's had a huge positive impact. As we lift those things off, will we be okay if we've not immunized 20% of the population? And then this is where my perspective is that no, we won't for two reasons. One is that's a big chunk of the population not to vaccinate at all. Um, And we aren't going to get, you know, 75 or 80 or 90% of the rest of the population immunized. Um, And then as well, if you leave that number of people unimmunized, that's a big reservoir of humanity where the virus can still circulate and create new um, mutants that lead to new variants that can be, um, that can cause problems. So I think both to reduce the number of people who are, to protect children, and to reduce the number of people who are carrying um, the SARS-CoV-2 virus around, we really need to uh, anticipate including children to be routinely immunized down to a young age. Yeah, the timing of all this is going to be interesting because, you know, come the end of September, we'll have a pretty significant 
portion of the adult population yeah. fully vaccinated. But we don't really know what, you know, the winter is going to look like and what kind of additional challenges, you know, the seasonality of this might pose. Yeah, we so certainly don't. Yeah, We're going to have to figure out a, a plan ahead of that, aren't we? Yeah, and so this is where I think that it's really great news that the Pfizer <clears throat> vaccine is moving forward with asking for formal approval. Um, a similar study with the Moderna vaccine is um, expecting results soon, and then both Pfizer and Moderna are moving forward with studies of younger children, 6 to 11 uh, years of age next, and then 2 to 5 years of age after that, and then 6 mm-hmm. months to 2 years after that. There's no reason why we can't include high school students and junior high school students in the vaccine program this summer in Canada uh, and, um, you know, expecting that we'll see this approval. And this is not a foregone conclusion, the approval, but there's, again, no reason to expect that there won't be approval of the vaccine for, for adolescents. And so if we can start to think about immunizing junior high and high school students and after that younger persons, that, I think, is going to um, likely be a big part of the of the uh, of the um, solution here, I think just l- leaving that larger group of the population unvaccinated without being pretty sure that it's okay not to vaccinate them is is going to put us in for a pretty uncertain um, yeah. winter of 2021. Well, and, and clarify for me now. Be, in, in Canada, is, is it is it approved for sixteen and up, or is it is, yeah, is it just recommended for eighteen and up right now? Yeah, so the, it's different with different vaccines. So the Pfizer vaccine is approved for sixteen and up because that okay. in their large clinical trial they had a lot of sixteen year olds. They had they had some twelve to fifteen year olds, but only a few hundred, and they haven't mm-hmm. reported any results on those. The Moderna vaccine and the AstraZeneca vaccine only um, reported and are only approved on the and Johnson Johnson for that matter only yes. approved on the basis of 18 and above. But Pfizer's is already down to 16. So theoretically, just based on what we already have approved, if if we focused on 16 and 17 year olds, that, that's a pretty significant proportion of, of the high school population, at least going high school September. population. Yes, but yeah. then you get down younger, and uh, yeah. and this is where I think adding in 12 to 15 year olds, it's you know, immunologically, 12 to 15-year-olds are pretty similar to 16 to 64-year-olds who are otherwise healthy. Their immune system has matured, and um, in a, um, and they have an adult-like immune system. Um, and uh, so, yes, getting 16, 17-year-olds is a start, no doubt about it. Um, but, um, you know, any kind of school-based program that only does 16 and 17-year-olds uh, will, you know, won't get at all high school students for sure. And I think at the very least, we need to do that, though. Um, in addition, as the data comes in, I think we uh, it, it, it behooves us to be um, planning for how we can deliver the vaccine to uh, younger children as well. And uh, um, again, with the perspective that as we lift off public health restrictions, you can't be completely confident that having vaccinated X percent of the population, whether that's 50 or 60 or 75 percent, that that'll be sufficient because that herd immunity is dependent on how much virus is circulating, and uh, yeah. and the, the 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 likelihood that virus is circulating is is influenced by the public health measures. As we lift those off, there's less there's less holding the virus back, back. and that's where I think we um, it, it it makes logical sense. And there's modeling around this that you're going to need more people immunized to be able to 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 stay on top of things once you start to lift your restrictions. We'll leave it there. Appreciate the insight on this, uh, Dr. Kellner. Thanks so much for joining us here. Okay, thanks, Rob. Take care. Bye. All the best. Uh, Dr. Jim Kellner, University of Calgary, uh, infectious disease specialist, professor and head of the Department of Pediatrics.
And so his thoughts on what the data is telling us, why this makes sense for Alberta to make this move now, and what we're going to have to look at in the months ahead. All right, welcome back. Rob Riggenridge with you. Look, I mean, obviously this pandemic, it's represented uh, enormous challenges in terms of health, the healthcare system. Uh, certainly it's represented economic challenges. And now, uh, you know, the, the past year has been uh, pretty tough economically. But there are all kinds of national security implications as well resulting from this pandemic. And, and some of those are obvious, right? You think about the global instability this creates. You know, even domestically, a lot of the, the discontent and unrest and how that might manifest itself, uh, disruptions in supply chains, you know, even uh, terrorist groups, uh, you know, how they might try to exploit the situation. So, yeah, it's, it's interesting how it, it might manifest itself and affects a lot of these different areas. So for those in national security, you know, it's, it's really turned a lot of this on its head. And I think maybe it's prompting a, a rethink about, you know, the impact on some of these areas, maybe how it changes our approach. To national security, at least changes some of our priorities. Uh, so this is all explored in a new book. It's called Stress Tested, the COVID-19 Pandemic in Canadian National Security. Uh, joining us to talk more about the uh, project is uh, one of the editors and contributors uh, of this book, which is, by the way, published by University of Calgary Press. Dr. Leah West joins us, Assistant Professor of International Affairs at the Norman Patterson School of International Affairs, Carleton University. Professor West, good to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. Why, why did you feel it was important to, you know, kind of take a deep dive on the, the national security side of, of this pandemic? Well, I think you did a really good job of kind of introducing why um, the pandemic stressed every part of Canadian life. And as myself and my co-editors and fellow researchers focus on the national security establishment in Canada, we really wanted to dive deep and see what the impacts, if any, were on on the community and how it does its job, um, especially because there were some early calls um, to, you know, think about treating the pandemic like a, a national uh, security issue, right? In terms of how we leveraged our what re- resources we leveraged, mm-hmm. and whether or not there was sufficient intelligence to understand where the virus came from, how governments would respond. Bond, and with, if we had provided our government with sufficient early warning. So all of these questions made us want to dig deeper into these issues. When you look at Canada's national security apparatus and, you know, prior to the pandemic, how they operate, what they were focused on, do you get the sense that that has changed significantly through this pandemic? Or, or are they still maybe kind of evolving or trying to figure out what the implications are? So... Most of our authors find that it hasn't changed, but the priorities have definitely shifted, and some of those shifts have been accelerated. So they weren't necessarily unforeseen, but um, the shift away from kind of traditional threats has evolved rapidly. And, And you can see this just with the idea of thinking how much more connected we all are and how much more connected government um, employees are, for example, or researchers or people who have access to sensitive information, right? And so all of that spurred, um, you know, movement by our, by adversaries to try and gain access um, to 
what was available now um, much more readily because we were all connecting online through through different means and and not in secure locations, for example, right? You have to remember that national security operators were also facing the pandemic. They had to work at home. The agencies had to figure out how to manage their staff, right, on a reduced um, operational footprint in order to keep them safe, right? So, and, you know, everything about um, how the national security agencies worked had to be modified, not just to adapt to the pandemic, but then to adapt to these accelerated threats, largely, you know, accelerated threats that we saw in the online space. Right. And not that we'd want to admit vulnerabilities, but I would imagine in terms of, you know, setting up secure networks, just just our overall capability, which would be uh, strained by these these circumstances. I mean, how much has it compromised our, our security infrastructure? Well, to be honest, when you ask CSC, CSC says that they've done a very good job. And CSC and the, uh, which is the communication security establishment, who has the responsibility for safeguarding um, Canada's, uh, you know, networks, government networks and infrastructure, they really are at the top of the the game internationally at this. And they have been really, really proactive, not just in helping the government secure its infrastructure, but also reaching out to sensitive sectors, so healthcare facilities and researchers and vaccine development about how to secure their networks. So they played a really important role in all of this. And and part of that, though, not just with CSC, but we've also seen it with CSIS, our security intelligence agency, has required them to be much more overt in telling Canadians about what the threats are because they're, we're having to respond quickly um, and in unprecedented times. So you're seeing our security agencies get out and actually talk to people and talk publicly about these threats in ways that have been really not seen before. Yeah, and it's, it's an interesting moment because in, on the one hand, you could argue that we really need to keep a close eye on what's happening globally, uh, instability in, in various countries, ways in which you know, non-state actors might exploit the situation. But at the same time, we're starting to think of of pandemics as, as a security issue. And if we have this intelligence gathering apparatus, maybe we should devote more of it to monitoring for potential pandemics, to better understanding uh, the threat that they pose. So how do we, how do we balance both of that? Yeah, no, that's, and that's uh, two chapters in our book kind of handle that issue, looking at our, our health intelligence apparatus, right? So we do have um, elements of defense intelligence that handle this issue. We also previously had the Global Public Health um, Network that was an intelligence agency all about early warning that was actually only recently defunded, right? And so yeah. it, it really does put emphasis on, on the fact of, like, we need to re-evaluate our priorities for what is a new national security era. And some argue that health intelligence should be a national security priorities priority. Um, two authors in our book make the argument that you know, no, we don't want our intelligence agencies that we typically think of talking about as espionage focused on um, health intelligence. But those agencies that do have a mandate, so our public health intelligence agencies, really do need to have a closer intersection between 
the national security establishment and public health. And we need to be able to link and, and communicate better. And that is actually a theme that we've seen across all of the research is this need for greater cooperation with non-traditional partners, um, you know, provinces, um, companies, um, you know, and the national security establishment. Um, the partnerships that have been established to deal with this crisis are different than what we would typically see. And I, I don't think that that's a trend that's going to fade away. Yeah. Let me ask you about your chapter, and uh, it deals with privacy and, and health and, and the question of surveillance. Whereas in the past, we might have talked about privacy versus security. You know, if we've got threats like Islamic extremism or white supremacism or, you know, certain terrorist groups, to what extent do we make use of surveillance tools? But now we've got a different kind of threat. Do those surveillance tools, do they still apply in, in monitoring that threat? Does it raise similar issues when it comes to privacy? Well, this, my cha- thank you. My chapter does look at the, at the issue of whether or not surveillance tools could be used in Canada as they've been used in other countries to track and trace the spread of the disease and also to ensure enforcement of public health measures. Um, and while it has been used to various effect in different countries, ultimately I conclude that there's actually no legal way, and I'm a lawyer, so this is the, always the first mm-hmm. question I ask, is is there any legal way to actually use the national security apparatus we have for these purposes if we wanted to? Remember, we chose to adopt a voluntary measure, right, the COVID alert app. You can choose to download it. It's up to you whether you activate it. It's up to you to actually tell people whether or not you've ultimately been found to have COVID, right? This is all voluntary. What if we wanted to do something that wasn't voluntary? Um, And currently there's no capacity to do that under Canadian law. And the COVID alert app, which um, I'm not sure Alberta has actually ever adopted. I think you have your own. Right. right, which again is another problem when you have different jurisdictions adopting different apps. Um, apps. Right, if we actually wanted to use something that is effective, because the COVID Alert Act has largely failed as a public health tool, what would that look like? And it probably wouldn't be voluntary. So, what kind of legal um, apparatus would we need to allow for this in the future, in the wake of future crises, but also still maintain? security um, of data, public data, and or private data, I should say, and personal information, and make sure that that information isn't used for other means. And I, and I do yeah. think that these are conversations that we need to have once the dust settles. Mm-hmm. It's interesting, too, when you talk about, you know, the, the legal limits that exist in terms of how far governments can go. There, there is the, the Emergencies Act, and, and I think mm-hmm. there's supporters of that, you know, or, or advocates of using it who seem to think, you know, it sort of bestows these superpowers upon the government mm-hmm. and detractors who say, look, this is just going to completely trample any and all civil rights in, in Canada. But is are people exaggerating the, the impact or the implications of, of the Emergencies Act, which which hasn't been used, by the way, yet? It, it really depends. The thing about the Emergencies Act is that it does give the federal government, you know, the most power it can possibly have under Canadian law, right? And it, it gives the federal government the power to trample on provincial jurisdiction, to to tell provinces 
no, we've got that. And not only are we going to manage that, we're also going to take your resources and your people to do it. Right. Um, so we're all kind of getting used to questions about the balance between our own public or civil liberties and public good, right. With these provincial orders we're under now yeah. add on top of that, the seizing of control from provinces to the feds and what the federal government chooses to do if it ever does engage in the emergencies act right is you know it's not a panacea there are limits within the act because each type of emergency and this would be a public welfare emergency only gives the federal government certain powers um it does not give the federal government the power to do what ndp leader jagmeet singh has called for the federal government to do that's those are not on the table um but you know, there's a menu. And, and so the emergencies that could be used to simply say, okay, we're going to federalize uh, ventilator distribution across the country, right? We're going to take control of that. It's a finite resource. We ha- only have so many. We need to take some from Alberta and give them to Ontario, for example. Or it could do a whole lot more, right? Um, so the issue with the Emergencies Act is that once it's triggered, the government has a lot of power, but it can't do anything and everything under the sun. Um, but, you know, obviously in some provinces where the, the premiers have a good handle on the issue, um, you can see why having the feds come in and take responsibility or take control of an issue would get a serious pushback. We got to leave it there. There's so much more explored in this book, Stress Tested, the COVID-19 Pandemic and Canadian National Security. Some really important issues here. Uh, Professor Leah West, thank you so much for joining us here today. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. All right. All the best. That is Leah West, uh, one of the editors of this book, contributor to this book, Stress Tested, the COVID-19 Pandemic, Canadian National Security. She's a professor, assistant professor, international affairs at the Norman Patterson School of International Affairs at Carleton University. So there's so many different angles to this that are really fascinating, just in terms of what you know the military does, what CSIS does, our whole national security apparatus, and people working from home and not being able to to operate under the same circumstances. How has that compromised our, our security? How have we changed our focus? And and does does this become a security issue instead of you know what's the situation in that country regarding? you know, support for ISIS. What's the situation in that country regarding, you know, the spread of the virus? Is it something that we want our national security forces to be focused on or somebody else? I don't know. So it's interesting in terms of what we think as threats, right? All right, welcome to this hour of the program. Rob Breckenridge with you here on this Tuesday afternoon. Now, we did hear yesterday from the Premier and the Health Minister. We're going to hear today from Dr. Dina Hinshaw. Uh, Alberta's still in, in a tough spot when it comes to active cases, new cases, hospitalizations. I mean, in Calgary, we've uh, set a new record in terms of uh, COVID ICU patients. So, I mean, it's, it's challenging right now, no doubt about it. And we are still living under some fairly strict restrictions. Now, there was a question of whether the government is prepared to go any further I think the answer we got yesterday from the premier is that uh, they're content with the restrictions that are in place now. And I guess the question is, how much longer is that going to be the case? So certainly all of this has an impact on on businesses, both in terms of, you know, people being able to come 
to their business, people feeling comfortable coming to their business, and also being able to keep their staff safe. And one thing the Alberta government did announce yesterday, and, and this is, I, I think, an important initiative. Look, if we've got all of these rapid tests sitting around, we should be doing whatever we can to get them off the shelf and being used. There's, there's no point in having them if they're just sitting there. So to the government's credit, they've been trying to find ways of getting these tests to use, right? making use of this resource. So initially, they made these tests available to, to really any company, any organization, any business uh, that was prepared to submit their proposal or essentially their, their screening plan. One of the caveats, though, was that you needed to have you know, like a nurse or a health professional involved to sort of oversee it. So that meant, you know, having to go out and find somebody, hire somebody, and it was some additional cost and hassle. Recognizing that, the province announced yesterday that that's no longer a requirement. So they're making it even easier now uh, for businesses and organizations to obtain these rapid tests, again, free of charge. Now, part of this announcement uh, was that the Alberta government is working with the Alberta Chambers of Commerce uh, to come up with a plan, a program, so that uh, these tests can get out to the uh, members of the Alberta Chambers of Commerce. And I think businesses recognize the real potential value of, of this tool. And joining us to talk more about all of this uh, is uh, Ken uh, Cobley. He is president and CEO of the Alberta Chambers of Commerce. Ken, great to have you with us here this afternoon. Welcome to the program. Thanks for the invitation, Rob. So tell us a bit about, um, you know, the how this, this partnership came about, this uh, agreement here that uh, you're going to be working with the Alberta government on this. You bet. Uh, we had a meeting with the provincial and territorial CEOs of the, of the uh, Chambers of Commerce right across Canada, and uh, we heard what was going on in Ontario, where uh, they were rolling out um, the tests via their community chambers, and um, the government had, in Ontario, had relax the requirement of oversight on the uh, tests. There are two things. There's oversight, which um, in Alberta, we did require a medical professional to oversee it for small business. And then there's the administration, administering of the tests, which could be do, done by anyone once they're trained. Uh, the oversight was the bigger barrier for, um, for businesses in that they would have to find a medical professional who is willing to oversee it and, and obviously have to pay them. So that was a barrier. So we raised that with the province. With the pre- I had a uh, call with the premier and suggested to him that they may want to look at the model that's in Ontario, which is very successful and really rolling out rapid tests through the community chambers. And to government's credit, they accepted it and have, it's moved along quite quickly. Why is this important from a, a business perspective? Why is this a tool the businesses are, are eager to embrace? Well, I think it's important for the entire province uh, obviously, businesses have a vested interest in ensuring that, you know, their their uh, their uh, staff um, are uh, not COVID positive, um, and it's all about building confidence within the employees, uh, with within the patrons, and within the uh, business owners themselves. So it's a very critical component to getting this thing under control uh, with rapid tests, as it suggests. You know earlier when somebody is positive, these are not administered to those who are symptomatic. They are, they are directed to go to uh, a regular testing facility. Right. But in testing uh, asymptomatic um, uh, employees, uh, it gives them a heads up if, if there's something amiss and that they should, in fact, get uh, you know checked out further. 
Now, it might vary from business to business, depending on the size and the nature, et cetera. But are we talking about you know, maybe once or twice a week? Are we talking about a random sampling uh, of workers or trying to test as many as possible? How, how does this work in practice? Uh, obviously, you can offer the test to your employees. You, you cannot make them take it. Um, one of, that's one of the details that we're to, to iron out with the province, um, just based on, on finding out what their supplies are, uh, who are the, um, you know, the, the, the main targets for it. Obviously, if a business has a lot of contact with the public or they're working in closed uh, quarters, um, those uh, would be targets. But again, those types of things are, are still to be uh, worked out with the province. What kind of a timeline are we on here then? Well, we expect probably by um, Monday uh, that we should know the particulars of that. Uh, we have a chamber call every mo- every Tuesday morning, and we have since the pandemic. Uh, so we will have details to, to give to the community chambers, and we will also be inter- um, making that, uh, uh, that that availability known uh, to the general public, uh, business owners. Um, so stay tuned. That should ra- roll out uh, fairly quickly. In terms of what your members uh, have been saying to you, I mean, were, were they looking for some guidance on this? They feel maybe more of a consolidated approach would make sense because I suppose, I mean, theoretically, they could have tried to apply on their own in the past, but is this a yeah. more efficient way of doing it? It is. And, you know, the, the application process was daunting to small business. Uh, so we're sort of removing that step from it. They still have to fill out some forms. They still have to, you know, have training on it uh, in Ontario. Uh, a business owner takes a 15-minute video uh, in the chamber office, um, and that trains them up. So um, it, I think it, it will it will definitely streamline the process and make it a little bit easier for um, for small businesses to to say, "Yeah, I can do this." And yeah, we certainly hope that this can make a difference. And oh, we, we've got these tools. Let's let's put them to use. And you know, I know we're anticipating, you know, May and June and into the summer. Certainly, things are going to be better. But yeah, it's it's tough right now, isn't it? It is. You know, it really is. And you know, I, I've often said that community chambers are the four one one call in their community when they need information. They're also the nine one one call when something's going sideways. And uh, certainly, the chambers, community chambers. Um, have received a ton of phone calls from businesses who are um, in some very desperate straits at this point, as you can imagine, with the additional, you know, additional restrictions. Um, so anything that can help. I think this is also key. You know, vaccines are a key. Um, the rapid tests are a key uh, to increase the public's confidence um, that when they walk into a store or restaurant or any other uh, business, that um, th- that they are in fact uh, safe. I have no concerns that they weren't safe before, uh, because businesses have taken their sanitization requirements very very seriously. Uh, they've invested a ton of money into you know making improvements, physical improvements in their premises, uh, in educating their staff. Uh, so this is one other tool to increase uh, the public's confidence when we get to a reopening phase, which I sure hope is soon. Yeah, no kidding. And again, let me, I want to throw something else out. I saw you were tweeting about this, and um, it's, it's been a little quiet uh, in recent days or recent weeks, and it's, it's the Line 5 situation. I know, you know, we're sort of looking forward to some better things in May, but I know we got this kind of lurking in the background, or we're coming up, I yeah. think, May 13th is potentially 
you know, decision day in, in Michigan, whether to shut down this line fly pipeline, this could have all kinds of ramifications in Alberta. And, and I know the business community is, is watching all of this very closely. Your thoughts just kind of on, you know, what's at stake here and, you know, why, why you're keeping a close eye on it? Well, you know, it's a, certainly uh, there's a lot at stake for Alberta because that is a prime pipeline to get oil and, and gas products into Ontario and into right. Quebec, um, as well as down into, into Michigan. Um, the line goes across Canada, dips down into Michigan, and then goes back into Canada and feeds the refineries at Sarnia. Uh, as I understand it, the refineries at Sarnia provide 60% of the oil and gas products for um, businesses and folks in Ontario and Quebec. Mm-hmm. So to lose that line uh, certainly would be an economic impact in Alberta, but would have dramatic impact in Ontario and Quebec. Uh, because of that, obviously, if the, the, the feedstock isn't going into the refineries, uh, they'd have to look for feedstock somewhere else. And the only alternative would to bring it we would to be bringing the tankers down through the St. additional tankers down through the St. Lawrence Seaway, uh, have it go from, and I'm not even sure if it's feasible, uh, have the feedstock uh, put into a pipeline uh, going to Sarnia, and then having that um, that that line reversed. Uh, to uh, send off the uh, finished product back into Ontario and Quebec. So this one has a tremendous impact on Ontario and Quebec for uh, security of of, uh, energy products. Yeah, this is a big deal. Let's hope this can get figured out. We'll leave it there for now. Uh, Much more at uh, abchamber.ca. Ken, always appreciate it. Thanks for making some time for us here today. Thank you, Rob. All right, all the best. Uh, Ken Colbley, President and CEO of Alberta Chambers of Commerce. So uh, some thoughts from him there, yeah, on the Line 5 situation, which we're going to have to start focusing on yet again because it's still not resolved, and uh, we're getting a lot closer to the drop-dead date here. So that needs to get back on our radar. But also some thoughts on, you know, the, the potential value of rapid testing and how businesses uh, can play a role here in ensuring that we're making use of these tools. There's no point, like I said, no point in having them if they're just sitting on a shelf. Over the weekend, uh, the Academy Awards were handed out. It's been obviously uh, uh, a unique year for Hollywood and and for movies. But uh, the winner for Best Documentary uh, was this film called My Octopus Teacher. Now, it's, it's a story about a guy, in a way, but it's also a story about these remarkable creatures. And, and the story kind of tells how this guy bonded, essentially, with, with an octopus. Uh, so I think it's a great way. I mean, obviously, the story is, is compelling, but it's, I think, a great way to, to, to learn more about these creatures. So like I said, won the Academy Award for Best Documentary Film. Scientific advisor on that film. Uh, from right here in Alberta, Dr. Jennifer Mather, uh, University of Lethbridge psychology professor and octopus expert, as I said, was involved as a scientific advisor on this film and joins us on the line here this afternoon. Uh, Professor Mather, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. I can barely hear you. Are you there? Yeah, we're here. You're, you're not hearing us on your end? That's better. It's still kind of soft. Anyway, happy okay. to be here. Well, thanks for joining us. Hopefully, yeah, we'll, we'll see if we can adjust that at all. Talk a bit about, first of all, because uh, I think this, this film was like years, like 10 years it, it took to, to put this all together. At, at what point did you become aware of this project, and how did you get involved? I became aware of the process in 2018. What happened is that I had been scientific advisor to 
the BBC Blue Planet series for a particular piece of film that they were planning to show and that they wanted to do to make absolutely sure it was completely authentic. So they got in touch with me and said, so can you tell us about all this? Is, we want to say this. Does this make sense? We saw this this way. Does this make sense? Mm-hmm. And I worked with them for a while and they said, gee, thanks. And then they said, well, um, the filmmaker would kind of like to talk to you. Would that be okay? And I said, sure. So Craig Foster got in touch with me and he said, well, I'm doing a film, and I guess he felt very much like the BBC people. He said, I want to make sure that while I know this is special and I want to make, you know, to do the film, I want to make sure that it is correct scientifically. And I said, sure, I'd be happy to help you. So then, somewhat to my surprise, he said, well, I'll fly you to South Africa for 10 days and we could work on the film together. And I said, sure. Never having been to South Africa, I was delighted at the thought. And so how, how did you feel about the, the final product? The final cut? Yeah. Oh, I thought it was excellent. Yeah. He's such a fantastic photographer. And it just all came together very, very well. Now, obviously, you're coming at it from more of a scientific background, but there's, there's that common thread there, isn't there, that, that you both have a fascination with these, these creatures, a real fondness for them. For you, where, where did that come from? For me, where did it come from being fascinated with sea animals? Yeah. yeah. Well, I grew up in Victoria, and I, my parents had a summer place on the seashore, and I was forever hanging around the seashore trying to figure out what was there trying to figure out what the animals were doing. And it's a long time ago now, but I decided I wanted to study sea animals for my life. And I was about 10 or 12, I think, and I did. So in a way, I think it's the same with Craig, because he showed at the beginning of the film the place where he lived as a child, which is fantastic, right at the edge of the water. And and I don't think you could possibly live near the sea and not get pulled into it. It's hard for people here from the prairies to know, but the sea is fantastic. It's ever-changing. It's, you know, you see the surface down there, and you know there's the hidden lands underneath, and you just you want to go find out. And I'm curious, too, and I think we know a lot uh, that, that these are very intelligent creatures. Uh, they have that problem-solving skills, puzzles. It, it's quite remarkable. But what do we know about them as social creatures? Because certainly that, that's a big part of this, this movie. Yeah, what, well, simply what we know about them as social creatures is they're not very social. We are finding some circumstances under which they are more social. So, for instance, way to heck and gone back when I did my graduate work, I brought a few animals in and kept them in a very big aquarium, and I noticed that they formed a dominance hierarchy. But this is quite common with animals that we think of as solitary out in the wild, that when you bring them in and crowd them, they make a dominance hierarchy. I guess I would say simply that I don't think octopuses like each other very much. <laughs> Do they, they like they us? May, you know, they may be aware <laughs> of each other. Yeah. And there's absolutely no doubt that when it comes to adulthood and they have to have sex, the males are attracted to the females. And, and so, of course, that's a very powerful thing. Of right. course, the females aren't quite sure whether they want anything to do with them, but that's beside the point. They, they give you that for a while. 
Well, there was a study, I think it was early this year, late last year, uh, suggesting that, that octopuses will punch fish, essentially, and, and for no reason other than, than spite, apparently. <laughs> what, what do we make of that? Well, okay, that's not true. Okay. And long ago when I was working, I have very good taste in field sites, by the way. I was working yeah. in Bermuda, and I noticed that octopuses would be followed by scavenging fish when they were mm -hmm. going out hunting. Or when they came back to their shelter, and they brought, say, a crab to eat or several clams, and then they threw out the shells. And a fish would come and try to grab pieces of the shells, and the octopus would often lash out at them. Not often, but sometimes. So it's, it's a kind of an interaction where, you know, the octopus gets too close to a territorial fish and it attacks, or the fish is scavenging stuff from the octopus, and the octopus is sort of going, bug off, get away. <laughs> so it, it's not no reason. It's perfectly logical <laughs> so reason. They're not, they're not mean. They're not bullies. Sorry, say again? Okay. I said they're, they're not bullies then. They're not mean. <laughs> no, actually, octopuses are usually quite what we call shy. They stay away from any kind of confrontation. Something else I read, tell me this is true, now, that octopuses, they can regrow limbs, and, and yeah. in some cases they will actually rip off a limb or detach a limb, either to escape a situation or to distract a predator? Yeah, the long-armed octopus species sometimes do that, and it's, it's called autotomy. They just sort of break the limb. Now, what happens in this case, and this is something that lizards do with their tails, is you break it off and it thrashes around and the predator that was about to eat all of you will be content with part of you. Mm -hmm. And then you could regrow it, which is perfect. Yeah. And then the point about their intelligence, too, that it, we, we've certainly seen really interesting signs of that. But one thing I was reading that, you know, for, for octopuses in captivity, for example... They can get very bored. It's almost like they, they need some stimulation. What does it tell us about how their minds work? Well, how would you feel if somebody dumped you in, say, uh, a barren room with nothing except walls and roof? Right, exactly. Right. And unfortunately, one of the things that probably happens when the artist gets bored is it tries to figure out how to get out. Mm -hmm. And since they have no bones and they're very strong they can get through really, really tiny little cracks and crevices. So pushing up the lid of the aquarium and squeezing out and falling down on the floor is something that happens relatively frequently, and especially if you're not very, very careful to make sure they can't get out. I think it's a combination of them. Sorry. <laughs> yes. The combination of all of these things, right, their, their intelligence, their uniqueness, um, and, and, and the fact that they've essentially existed in this form for as long as they have, I mean, th there's really no creature like them. There, there's a lot of fascinating life in the ocean, as you alluded to earlier, but I, I don't know. I mean, do they get more fascinating than this? Well, uh, I think that's particularly what drew me to studying their intelligence, because we're fascinated with the intelligence of animals, but most mm -hmm. of the animals that are fairly intelligent are similar to us. So the elephant, the monkey the right. dog. They're mammals like us. So we can say, well, intelligence involves, involves for these particular reasons in these particular situations, particularly with highly social animals. But as soon as you go look at the octopus, you can't do that. They're
they're not particularly social. They're not related to us. They evolve this high intelligence, I think, because they have no protective shells or spines. They have to make their living by their wits. And so in order to avoid being eaten, they've got to figure out how to live by their wits, how to be smart. What do you hope people get from, you know, the movie and, and all of this attention? Do, do we need to be worried about octopuses? I mean, are, are there, there areas of the planet where there is that concern? Well, one of the things about Craig is he's involved in a project, the Sea Change Project, working in South Africa. And the film is part of what they're doing. They want to save the oceans, particularly they want to save the gorgeous ecosystem that you saw in the film, the kelp forest in South Africa. So so this is part of this plot to save the earth, so to speak which, of course, anybody of any sense is part of. We really have mm-hmm. to preserve the wild spaces. We have to decrease greenhouse gases. And even though we think of the ocean as being limitless, it's not limitless. And the kinds of things we do to it, we have to stop doing. Yeah, important points. Dr. Mather, thank you so much for your expertise on this. And uh, you know, I'd, I'd say congratulations. I think you, you were part of this, this film and uh, the award it received on Sunday. So thank you so much for joining us here today. Really appreciate this. Just a small part, but it was lovely. Sure. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. All the best. There you go. That's uh, Dr. Jennifer Mather, University of Lethbridge, and uh, yeah, scientific consultant on this uh, award-winning, Oscar award-winning documentary. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Rob Breckenridge. You can email me, rob at 770CHQR.com. Talk to you next time. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, starting at 1230 on News Talk 770 Calgary.